Welcome, this is the Sales IQ Podcast. My name is Luigi Prestonenzi, and I'm on a mission to help salespeople be the best sales professionals they can be. Each week, we'll bring you a different message from thought leaders from around the globe, so we can help you master the art of selling. Very excited today. Our guest today is Anthony Inarino, who is regarded as the number one thought leader globally in B2B sales. He is an advisor to a number of organizations, runs a number of companies himself, and he's also a best-selling author. Super pumped to have you on our show today and dive deep into the topic of closing. Before we get into this, we'd love to learn a bit, a little bit more about you, Anthony, and how you started in sales. Hmm. How did I start in sales? Reluctantly. I, I didn't want to be in sales. I, I thought that sales was smarmy, pushy, self-oriented, manipulative. I, I thought every bad thing that you know as a stereotype around sales, that's what I thought about it. I ended up in sales um, for real. I mean, I, I had sold, I, I actually started cold calling when I was 15 for uh, a charity called the Muscular Dystrophy Association here. And I did really well for them, although I had a much more fun job. So I never went back once I got a job working at a skating rink with, I'm 15 at the time, and there were a lot of 15-year-old girls at a skating rink, so that worked out a lot better for me than cold calling. And and then I, I worked in the family business, and when we didn't have anything to do, we were supposed to call people and see if we could help them. And so I was calling people trying to help them uh, get the people that they needed, and I didn't know I was selling at the time. I was just seeing if I could be helpful to people. I ended up in L.A. playing music at night, and I needed a day job. And I went to work for another staffing company because it was the only thing I really knew how to do. So I was working that job and I got a new manager and he realized that our three salespeople weren't selling anything. And he came to me and he handed me a list. This is a short version of this story of all my clients. And he asked, you know, whose accounts these were and who brought them in. And I told him those are all mine. And I had at the time hair down to my waist. I'm playing music at night. And he can't understand what he's looking at. He's like, this does not look like a salesperson. It doesn't even look like a business person. <laughs> and maybe it doesn't even look like a person in his view. And, and he's a square guy, you know, went to college and all that stuff. And I'm a kid that's fronting a, a hard rock band. And he said, how did you win these accounts? And I, I never thought about it. And but I just gave him the best honest answer I could give him. I said, people come in here and I know where they used to work. So I call those companies because I know they hired the kind of people that I'm interviewing here to see if they needed anything. And I ask some of them if they'll have a meeting with me and they say yes. And then I ask them if I can help them. And sometimes they share their challenges with me. And I ask them if they have anything I can do for them right now. And they give me orders. And he said, that's beautiful. Well, I want you to cut your hair and go into full-time outside sales. Yep. And that was the furthest thing from my mind. He might have said, you know, I want you to become a, a psychopathic, you know, mass murderer. <laughs> because I would have never, I mean, if you would have told me like, hey, you're a really good salesperson, I would have been like, how could you say that about me? It's the last thing on earth I am. Yeah. But he, he uh, eventually told me that I had to do it or he was going to fire me. And I went into outside sales and I w ended up winning the second largest account uh, in the company of a $4 billion company. It was $10 million annually, wow. five-year deal. So $50 million deal, uh, in about, I don't know, four months of being in outside sales. And, uh, I realized what I had been doing when I was winning those accounts before was out solving people's business problems. Now 
if you would have told me, hey, selling is really helping other people solve their difficult business challenges, that would have been interesting to me. But when you say, I want you to be a salesperson, that to me was something negative. Yeah. And when I went out and I started actually doing it and I realized you're really a consultant, you're really a person who has greater subject matter than the client and you're helping them do something, then it was very easy for me and I loved what I did. Yeah, that's fantastic. So that's where you really found your passion when you're able to help and solution people's problems. Yeah. And you know, that is really what you do when you're selling. And so even though uh, we have all these ideas and these concepts about what selling is, and it is a whole bunch of different things. Is it discovery? For sure. Is it challenging your prospective client with an insight? Of course. Is it around negotiating and storytelling and all those things? They're all important. But at its core, you're helping somebody get an outcome that they can't get without you. And when you realize that, it's a very different game that we play. Okay, fantastic. Just on that, because there's so many things that you've just mentioned, and it's funny because at the start of our training sessions, um, Anthony, we asked the question to people, you know, when you think of sales, when you when you think of salespeople, come up with a word to describe them. And, and 90% of the time, people come up with negative words, you know, pushy, um, sleazy, slimy, real estate salesperson, car salesperson. Um why do you think that in 2018, when so much content and you know experts like yourself who are out there promoting the good parts of what sales is, why is this still a still an issue today? I think because the same thing that happened to me happens to other people. The first experience you have with a salesperson is either a retail salesperson. You know, you're you're someplace buying something and they're aggressively trying to show you lots of things you don't want to buy or a car salesperson. And so that's your first experience. And then you've got all the cultural stereotypes about what salespeople are. And then your first experience confirms that for you. So I, I agree with what you're saying. It's interesting. I taught at a university and I started teaching MBAs and they conned me into teaching undergrads uh, professional selling, which was basically... A survey. So you really can't teach somebody to sell yeah. in a classroom with a textbook. It doesn't work that way. But <clears throat> I was, uh, every class, what I would do is say, tell me the words that you would use to describe salespeople. And I would go up to a whiteboard and I'd write all the words down. And they were just the same kind of words that you just rattled off. You know, smarmy, slimy, sleazy, manipulative, pushy, yeah. hard sell, high pressure, all those things. So I would write them all down. And then I would, what I would do is say, raise your hand if one of your parents works in sales. And out of about 25 kids, maybe six or seven hands would go up. And then I would say, okay, leave your hand up if your mom works in sales. And about half of them would have a mom that works in sales. So that's three people. And so I would find one of them. And then I would say, uh, so, uh, Luigi, so your mom is a selfish, smarmy, pushy, <laughs> self-oriented, manipulative person that's out taking advantage of people. And that person would go, no, that's my mom's nothing <laughs> like that. Her clients love her. How could you say that about my mom? And I'm like, I'm not saying about your mom. You guys said that about your mom. <laughs> and, and it, to, to sort of show them like the things that you think about salespeople, when you think about your mom or your dad, like their clients love them. They call them on the weekend. They're actually friends. Right, right. Because we work closely with people. We help them get outcomes they can't get without us. And you don't benefit by being 
slimy or manipulative or high pressure. None of those things benefit you in sales anymore. And mm. I know they did at one time, you know, 70 years ago, 60 years ago, but they don't anymore. So that behavior now costs you sales. It doesn't win you sales. And so people don't believe, but the the stereotype persists. It's a very persistent stereotype, and I think a lot of it's cultural. Yep. You know, that's how salespeople are portrayed in movies, and like Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, and yeah. things like that. So it sort of becomes it becomes a stereotype that sticks. Yeah, it's and it's funny you bring this up, and I've I've actually got a question for later on in the in our in our chat, but I'm going to bring it forward because one of the articles that you wrote talked, and I really enjoyed reading it. Um, it talked about hustle. Now, can you expand on this, please, and how it relates, uh, how hustle relates in a, in a good, positive way? I I can, and I I will tell you the I've there's I've gotten a lot of pushback on that, and I I wrote a series of posts on the blog uh, that I called the Hustler's Playbook, yeah. and I was really I really started writing those for my children, and I just wanted them to understand how success works in the world. And then I decided I'm just going to go ahead and publish them under this category (laughs) so that I can share them with other people. But when you hustle someone, that means you're like on a street corner and you're playing three card Monty with cards or with little cups with a ball in them and you're trying to take money from people. And, And that's a hustle. But the way that we use hustle now and where I think it creates value for people is a person who's a hustler is somebody who works uh, very hard and with great urgency. They work like they have a purpose, that it's important that they do what they do, that they're trying to generate some outcome. Mm -hmm. And that's the positive sense of the word. So there's a lot of people that when you say that, they immediately start to go, uh, they chafe and they get resistant on it. Like, oh, hustle, I never want to be a hustler. Well, yes, you do. You never want to have, you never want to be somebody with a low moral IQ. You never want to be somebody that takes money from somebody without creating value for sure. And no one would say that. But honestly, for most people, they would do better. They would take better care of their families. They would take better care of themselves. They would do better work if they hustled. That means figure out what's most important, what has to be done, and then do it with great intention and great urgency because that's what it means to hustle. So if you use it as a verb and say, you need to go hustle on this, then it's a positive thing. But if you say, go hustle someone, now you're doing something to someone. And I would tell you my view of sales is it's not something you do to someone. It's something that you're doing for someone and with someone and that they get a benefit from. So yeah. if they get a benefit from it, you're allowed to capture some of the value that you create, but they also have to create and capture some of that value too. Yeah, that's awesome. And just on that, and before we get into suppose you know the definition of um or you know closing and gaining commitments etc how important is creating value in the sales process it's the it's the whole game so the the way that you have to think about this right now uh and this is i'm i'm right in the middle of my third book which will come out in three weeks so i'm right in the middle of the launch plan for that rather and we're working on this and what strikes me is how few people understand that this is a zero-sum game. I know they know it um, consciously, but not their subconscious behavior doesn't really demonstrate. This is a zero-sum game. So either I win or you win. And if you win, then I lost. And if I win, then you lost. 
And so there's a finite number of clients and there's plenty to go around. I know that. So when people push back and they're like, no, you're saying this wrong. There's plenty of clients out there available, right? Sure there are. But when we both compete for one of them, one of us wins and one of us loses. Okay. So that's how it works. So you're a competitor. So what you have to do is create the strongest preference to work with you and with your company on a solution, especially if it's a longer term complex B2B sale where we're going to work together for, I hope for decades. So you are trying to differentiate yourself in a way that says, I would rather work with Luigi than anyone else. That's the game that you're playing. So how do you do that? You create greater value than anyone else. And I'm not saying your product needs to create greater value because that's probably not true. Yeah. Everybody has a good product now. And I'm not saying that your company doesn't have something to say about this and play into it. Your company, it's great if you work for a great company, but I disintermediated and took out competitors uh, in the largest accounts in the city that I grew up in from the largest competitors in the world because I was willing to create greater value than they were. And that is the whole game. So if you want to win They have to look and say, Luigi is the better choice, and this is why. He's smarter. He's got greater situational knowledge. He has greater business acumen. He understands our business. He spent time with our people. He gave us a new way of looking at this. He gave us different questions to ask. This is the person that we want on our team. That's really what you're trying to do. And if you don't create value and you go in and you say, hey, Luigi, it's Anthony, and I'd like to start by telling you a little bit about me and my background and then my company, and then I'd like to show you the slides of all the big logos that we've already captured and then share with you my products, that doesn't create value for them. All you're doing is talking about you and you're hoping that all those other factors weigh heavily enough for somebody to say, yes, I'll buy from you. But they're not trying to buy that stuff from you. They're trying to buy from somebody who can help them really get the results. So when you're outcomes focused, then you position yourself as a trusted advisor and a peer and consultative. And that's all about value creation. Yeah, it's funny, you know, that whole, I think, what does Jeb Blunt say? You you don't want to show up and throw up. So, you know, what you've just discussed is all about building value, building a relationship and getting that trust um, where you can advocate and provide insight and advocate a solution. So thank you for sharing that. Now, before we get into, again, so we've built relationships, we've, um, you know, we've, we've asked discovery questions. We've earned the right to essentially sit at the table with our, with the, you know, with a prospect or a potential customer. Before we get into the, you know, closing or getting some form of commitment, we'd love to hear and, and what your definition on closing is. It's the gaining of a commitment that causes your client to do something that moves you closer to a deal. Okay. That, that's my view of this. And I'm saying this in a B2B way. So in yeah. B2C, closing means I get ink. You give yeah. me ink on paper. I sell you this thing. You buy it. Yeah. But in B2B, when you jump that far ahead, you're missing eight commitments that generally happen. And so the commitment gaining that I'm talking about are all the little commitments yep. that you would call maybe what well, well, Jeb calls them micro, micro commitments. I don't think they're micro. I think they're macro. Okay. I think they're macro. I think they're actually a huge milestone. And when you get one, it really counts for something that indicates movement towards that better future state. 
But in B2B, when you skip over those and you try to get to the end without doing these things, it tends to disrupt the process for the buyer and it causes them to find reasons to say, we can't do this. And so I think of commitments as every single commitment that they have to make. And there's 10 of them in the book, The Law Started Closing. I could have put 20 in there, but I tried (laughs) to roll some of them up together, like getting information. Um, that that's one where people say, yeah, I'll send you the report so you can look at this as part of the discovery process. And then they don't send the report because yeah. they didn't really commit. You know, th- yeah. so the, the, it's all, all those things that really matter that position you to win down the home stretch. Oh, fantastic. So you've mentioned, you know, getting information. Um, are we able to dive deep into some of the other 10 commitments that are so important when helping the customer through that buying process? I'm I'm happy to go through as many of them as you want to here. I'll, I'll tell you where there's a, there's a few that are worth talking about for yep. sure. The first one's the commitment for time. And I just demonstrated you a way to do that horribly when I pretended to say, I'd love to stop by, introduce myself and my <laughs> services, tell you a little bit about our company. And people are like, yeah, that doesn't sound like value creation to me. Yep. That sounds like you're going to talk about you. And I don't really care about you. You know what I care about? My customers mm. and my people and my problems and my job, you know, so you're just starting in a very wrong place now and people don't have time for it anymore. Yeah. So that's an important one. But instead, if I say, Luigi, listen, it's Anthony and Arino. I'm with B2B sales coach and consultancy. And listen, I would love to uh, give you a 20 minute executive briefing. I'm going to talk about all the trends that are going on in sales right now. Some of the changes that you may not have considered for your sales team yet, but some things that are going to be critical that in our view that you have to do over the next 18 to 24 months if you want to position them for success in the future. What do you look like Thursday for a 20 minute meet and greet? I'll give you this executive briefing. I'll give you the slide deck. And listen, I promise you, even if there's no next step for us, you are going to challenge your team to do some different things just based on the deck that I give you and the few questions that we go over together. What's Thursday look like for you? Done. Now I position myself. (laughs) Yeah, I'm up here, right? And I know things. And you're like, well, I wonder what's in that slide deck. And I wonder what he thinks we should be worrying about. And it's interesting. And you might get a challenge where you might say, well, what are some of those trends you're looking at? And I might say something like uh, the the over-reliance on account-based marketing and social selling as a prospecting method. And I can show you specifically evidence that proves that the phone is the fastest way for you Mm -hmm. to create those results. When we get together, I'll share with you what the statistics are, and then you can make up your own mind whether or not it makes sense for your company. I'm going to go back and ask for that commitment again. But the commitment yeah. for time now, there's a couple principles in the book. The first one is you have to trade value in excess of the time you're asking for or the commitment that you're asking for. If I'm asking you for 20 minutes, I have to make it worth your time or you should say no. And I say no to a lot of appointments because they're not valuable for me. Yeah. <clears throat> the second thing is you have to try to control the process. And if you start the process with, this isn't about me, it's about you. And I've literally had clients start there with me and say, listen, we'd like to hear about you and what you do. And I'm like, I'm the least interesting thing in this room, and I'm happy to share more with you later. But I'd like to start by telling you the best way to get to know us is to know what we think about. And let me share with you some of the ideas that we're thinking about now. It's just a very different approach that starts you off Mm -hmm. in a better position to be a value creator. So that's a critical uh, commitment that you need to gain. And that's a better strategy for getting there. Yeah. When we hear the way that you positioned your value uh, and, and trying to secure that meeting, that there was so many things in that that, you know, for the people listening, you've got to pause, go back and listen to exactly what Anthony said because 
that is the right way. That is the way that's going to get people to peak. You're going to pique their interest and get them to want to talk to you. And even if they have that objection or that that first, um, I'm not sure if I've got enough time, the mere fact that, you know what, I wanted to hear what you were saying, Anthony. I was actually really engaged. So that was that was fantastic. And just on that, how important is it to get that positioning statement really concise and clear before making that type of call? You you need to know how you create value for sure. I mean, and if you don't know what you know and how you should position that, then it's very, very difficult. But okay. it's critical that you understand what you're trying to do. And I'll just tell you the intention here matters a great deal, Luigi. It matters. Yeah. I'm trying to be a peer. I'm trying mm. to be a trusted advisor. I'm trying to be consultative. You need to feel that with the first words out of my mouth. So commitment gaining really starts with the most difficult commitment to get now, I think, is time. Yeah. And I would tell you, if if we were to survey your listeners right now and say, raise your hand right now, if once you get in and once you get past that first commitment, you feel like you're halfway there because it's so hard to get that first thing, everybody would raise their hand and say, it's so hard to get in front of them. But when in, I'm in front of them, I do great. Yeah. I know, but you got to be really good to get in front of them now. Mm. That's what's changed. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, it's one of the things, right? Yeah. <laughs> all right. So sorry to hijack you there and 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 take you that's back right. to your positioning state. The way the way you you close me on the phone. But what's the next commitment that we need to we need to focus on? Well, if you're if you're going through them um, in the sequence that they are in the book, it would be exploring change, and that can happen in one meeting. It can happen over a course of three or four meetings, where during that meeting you start talking about this is what we're noticing. These are some of the questions we're helping our client ask. Let me get your feedback on this. Tell me how you guys are tracking on this one. And at some point they're going to say, you know what, we really need to talk more about this. You know, we're interested in doing something different here, and you're right, we are already struggling with this. And so then all of a sudden, boom, I'm in yeah. Explore. Now I'm looking at exploring change. And from there, most of us are pretty good. And honestly, we've been doing solution selling for so long, mm. we know how to do good discovery. I yeah. mean, if if you read Jeff Toll's Mastering the Complex Sale or you read New Solution Selling – if you've been through any training, you know how to do good discovery. Most people do. It's after that where we start to get into real trouble. Mm. And the real trouble that we end up in is the third commitment is generally, uh, are you willing to change? Does it make sense to change? So now I have to go back to you, Luigi, and I have to say, listen, if all these challenges that we talked about are already having an impact on your business, does it make sense to do something about this now? And if it does, are we going to be able to get the time and the resources and the support of your team to put a program like we've been talking about together? Mm. That's the commitment to change. And I want to tell you where people get this wrong. They go through discovery, they present, and then they get the, you know what, we decided we can't do this right now. We changed our mind about this. We have another priority or somebody else said we can't do it right now because they don't have the money, whatever it is. That happened because there was no real commitment to change. Yep. There was just the commitment right there at that point to have a conversation about exploring change. Exploring, I can do some of the other things that we do when we're in exploration. We collaborate on what the solution looks like. Sometimes we go to the next commitment, which is consensus. We bring in other stakeholders to help us really understand what's going on and what's possible. Yeah. But you can do all of that work and then still not get a deal because they never really committed to change. And I would I would tell you, if you're listening to this and you look at your pipeline, 
if you've never had that conversation, does it make sense to do this? Are we going to be able to get the support of your people and their time and the resources that we need to do this? You're going to get a very, very honest answer when you ask that. And sometimes it's not going to be the answer you like. You're going to hear something that says, uh, listen, you know, we we would be able to do this, but we can't do it for six months because there's no way we can get it on a project board right now. Okay, good. So then I get to say, can I share with you what we might do over the next six months to get in position to do that and let us do some of the learning we need to do to be able to help you with this? But at least I know where I am and I know what I'm supposed to be doing. So you need to ask for that commitment. Yeah. But the other thing is if you do that and you actually qualify that opportunity and get a really good sense of when they're, when the timing, and if you look at the BANT sort of qualification methodology, um, even though it's been challenged a little bit, at least you're able to manage your pipeline and know that this one might not close for six or 12 months. Um, I need to fill it up with some other opportunities um, because otherwise I'm going to have a, you know, a pipeline issue in, in a couple of months. So um, that's a really, really good um you know, th- th- really appreciate you sharing that with us, Anthony. So we, we'll we, talk about Bant another time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I've heard you. You know, I have read, um, seen some of the stuff out there about that, that particular methodology. So now we've explored change. Um, we've understood their commitment to change, etc. And what's the next? <coughs> the next step? Collaborate. And the one thing that I would tell you is we're, we're all really good at going in and pitching our product or service or solution, whatever. But if you really want them to own it, you have to invite them into the conversation to say, Mm -hmm. let's look at this and see what's possible here. What do we have to do to make this work? What are your best ideas? What do you want? When we do that, we get their buy-in. Yeah. And we also get them helping shape the solution. When they shape the solution, it transforms from it's not my solution anymore and it's not their solution anymore. It's our solution. So now we're defending this thing and pursuing it together. Yeah. And you don't get that if you leave them out of the process. So you have to invite them into that so that you can get their engagement around what the right answer is. And look, if they shape the right answer with you and you hand it off to them, it's the right answer. So yeah. why would you give them something that they could say no to? when letting them make the modifications and tailor it to their company gets you a yes. Yeah. But when you skip this and you go straight to, I have the right answer, when they look at it and say, it's not exactly the right answer, you just lost. Yep. Yeah, that's such an interesting um, you know, thought, Anthony. I remember earlier in my career, one of the biggest deals I won at the time was around seven and a half to $10 million. So it was the biggest in my company, the company I was working for history, and also mine at the time. When we got the sign-off, it was based on I worked with the executive team or some of the executive team members on drafting their internal business case for <coughs> sign-off. So we sat in the same room, we took what we whiteboard, we took the discovery, and we, we basically put it into a business case where it justified the investment that they were going to make. Um, and so, you know, that collaboration is absolutely key. So now we've collaborated. Um, next step. Sorry, are you there? Oh, okay. Sorry. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah. I can hear you now. It's okay. Okay. Yeah. I'll, sorry I'll about edit, that. I'll edit that the, part uh, out. <laughs> that, that was not the best sale that you ever made. It might have been the biggest financially, but I'm looking at this picture. See, no one else can see it, but we're on Skype. So I can see a picture of you and what must be one of your children. Yep. Two of them. They're dear to my heart. Two, two of your children. Yeah. So at some point, uh, you got married. 
Uh, I did, but I... Uh, yeah, yeah, that's that's the biggest deal you've made. Yeah. <laughs> Two kids? Yep. Yeah, so... Yeah, they gotta uh, look like their... They look like their mom, right? <laughs> yeah, no, they keep my hands full, you know. I, um, I think they're sick of listening to podcasts, Anthony. They're constantly listening to podcasts or sitting there editing podcasts <laughs> with me, and they've had enough. I tried to... There's a really good one called School of Greatness, and my young boy is a um, big soccer fan, you know, and he wants to be a... a he wants to be a soccer player, and I keep telling him, that's all great. That's that's my my buddy Lewis Howes, right? Yeah, yeah, Lewis Howes, and I let him listen yeah. to Kobe Bryant. Yeah, Lewis is a friend of mine. And um, as I said to him, just like in sales, just like in business, or in anything you want to be successful at, you can't be successful if you don't put the hard work in. And so we're having a bit of a, you know, bit of a tussle at the moment with him around, he's got to put the work and get off the Xbox. So, you know, not too dissimilar to what sales professionals want. They want the outcome. Not necessarily um, happy to put the effort in. Lewis had, um, was part of my Toastmasters club, and I've, I've known him since he started down this path. And I can tell you, uh, if your son listens to School of Greatness with you, uh, you can know for sure. Uh, when Lewis started out and he had no money, he stayed in a hotel with me in Chicago when we went to a conference together. Oh, wow. And I watched the guy work from the time he got up until about. I would say till maybe midnight, and then he went out and did uh, some sort of uh, Latin dancing that he <laughs> he does. Yeah, and he went out extremely late at night. But I watched the guy, and I'm thinking, he's he's doing this as a hustler, as an entrepreneur. But if I were to drop him into any company, and you saw his work ethic, you'd know he'd be successful anywhere he is because yeah. his work ethic was is very strong. Yeah. Well, I'm a big fan of him, and he's on my board. I'm I'm. <clears throat> aiming to get him on my show because he is he's someone that inspires me every single week anthony so thanks for sharing that with us um so even though we digressed but we're going back to the 10 stages or you know some of the commitments required from a closing perspective um we've collaborated we've got that sort of what's the next thing that we need to do in order to progress the sale through the buying process the, the big one and the most difficult one i think for most people is consensus we have to go around and get all the people that we need to say yes, and then identify all the people who may say no, and try to mitigate whatever harm we're going to create by giving them a new solution, yeah. and getting their buy-in by making adjustments. So that one is now the big one. I think it's really, really tough to do right now. My friends mm-hmm. at Gardner, who was CEB, the Challenger guys, uh, they'll tell you that there's 6.8 people in a deal, and they'll tell you the number is growing. I think that that's going to flip back the other way at some point. But right now, it's probably the critical uh, commitment that you need to get. So I've yeah. got to be able to say to you, Luigi, listen, can I share something with you? You say yes. And, and I have to say, in my experience, if we don't bring your IT department into this very early in the process, mm. we're going to get so far ahead of them that by the time they figure out what we're trying to do, they're going to slam on the brakes. Who's going to be most friendly to this and how do we bring them into this conversation and when can we do that? And again, it's my job to control the process. I know how this works, so I have to tell them where the problems and challenges are yep. so that they can get the help they need doing the right thing. So this is another one of your responsibilities. I would say that's another really tough one. Yeah, yeah, and a lot of the stuff I like that you're putting out it talks about you know selling to a committee um, and getting you know multiple stakeholder engagement is critical in the buying process. So that's fantastic. So you mentioned that six point eight. That's that's quite a lot of people. So what if what if we get to the point where we we um, 
we try to engage with a different, you know, stakeholder or department, but you're, you're, the person you're dealing with sort of doesn't want you to go around them. Well, what are some of the strategies that we could use to um, get them to help us engage versus seeing us as trying to go around them? I'm, I'm, I'm telling you that is what's going to happen. Okay. Uh, there, there's a hundred percent certainty that that is going to happen. Yeah. And they're going to say, listen, Luigi, listen, you know, I love what you're trying to do here, but we call my IT department, the SHIT department in <laughs> we, we, that, that is, it's super helpful IT and, and it's because they're not super helpful on things like this. They're always complaining, telling us we can't do these things. I don't want to bring them in. Yeah. That's going to happen to you. Or they're just going to say, listen, I'm the one that's going to make the decision here. That's going to happen to you. So you have to have some chops and you have to have some language around it, uh, which is why I put the language in every chapter of the book so somebody could hear what this sounds like. But I have to say, uh, listen, I will not let this get out of your control. But in my experience, if we don't bring them in sooner rather than later, they're going to be so far behind when they say, no, we can't do this and that we haven't included them. They're going to have the moral high ground and they're going to be right about this. And then I think we're going to be on our back foot. And in my experience, we never win from that position and we're never able to get these things across the line and put this in place if we can't do this. So who would be the most friendly person that we could bring in so we could start easing them into this and maybe start building some help in that department? Yeah, You have to do something. So here's the thing I'll tell you. Human beings tend to fear the wrong dangers. Yep. So we fear bringing the person in. The real danger is not bringing them in. They fear spending more money than they're spending. The real danger is under-investing in the results they want. Mm. And so you have to know that you're trying to help somebody who thinks they're acting in their best interest because they're being driven by fear. What if this doesn't work? What if it embarrasses me? What if I don't get the promotion that I'm trying to get? What if other people start to look at this and decide something different about me? That's going through their head. Even if it's not conscious, it can be subconscious, but it's still happening. Your job is to help them face the right fear by resolving their concern. It's not an objection you're hearing. We talk a lot about objections, but it's not an objection. They're sharing with you a real concern. It's your job to interpret it and then help yeah. resolve it. Yeah, that's amazing. And and so just on that, when when we get to that, and I know that if some salespeople say they never had this, never happens, but um, I know that they're probably telling a, a little bit of a, a white lie. But when we get to a point in a sale where we've we've really followed these steps, Anthony, we've we've gone through, we've got consensus, we've got you know collaboration. What can we do when a customer goes cold during that buying process? When we have created that value and we know that they've got a need <coughs> and it's important, and there's that emotional buy-in, what are some of the things that we can do to to re-engage? When you interview Jeb, he's going to tell you that things that get chased tend to run. Yeah. <laughs> and he'll be right. Okay. And, and it's because you're chasing. So the first thing that you need to know is it is your job to control the process. So when you allow them to leave a meeting without making a firm commitment, then you did that. When you handed over the proposal and said, uh, here's our final proposal. Thank you so much. Loved meeting with you. Thanks for letting us come into your boardroom and present this, blah, blah, blah. And they say, Luigi, uh, thank you so much. We love everything that we saw here. We're going to get together and we'll get back with you in two weeks. Okay. Now that sounded to your ears like they made a commitment. They're going to get back yeah. to you in two weeks. They did not make a commitment. That's not a commitment. They didn't put it on their calendar. They have no 
date that specifically says they're going to call you on that particular date, nor is it their obligation to do that. Yeah. They're saying that because that's what they really believe they need to do. And if we're I'm jumping forward to the commitment to resolve concerns, uh, which is the one right before the commitment to decide where we finally ask number nine. So this yeah. is number eight. If, if you don't say, uh, Luigi, listen, um, can I share one idea that I'd like to ask you to consider if that's okay? Sure. And I'm asking in a very soft way, super consultative language. I'm not pushing anybody. Yeah. What tends to happen is when you meet with your team and you start going back over this, I won't be in the room and they're going to have questions and you're going to have some new questions come up that haven't been asked yet or haven't been answered yet. And people are going to have concerns. So what I'd like to ask is if you could have that meeting and then at the end of the meeting, allow me to come in either on video or by voice and just make sure that we take care of everyone's needs and everyone's concerns, because if they're not a hundred percent confident moving forward, then we owe them some explanation as to how we're going to solve whatever their challenge is, or at least give them the information that they can feel comfortable. Yeah. Could I ask you to give me 20 minutes at the end of that meeting, just to make sure that you have everything you need to make the right decision, because it's my job to make sure that I've done that for you, even if you decide to do something different. And again, I have to ask this because they're going to get in a room and somebody's going to say, mm. are we spending too much money? Yeah, I think we might be spending too much money. Did we see other things that were cheaper than this? Do we believe that they're better? Can they justify that difference for us? Or are we better off? Is somebody going to look at this and ask why we spent 12% more? And and there's no one there to have that conversation with them. So what do they decide to do? Hey, look, uh, let's play it safe right now. Let's punt this down the road. We'll look at it again in another quarter. Yeah. And if that's never happened to you, I promise you it will. Mm. It's just a matter of time because that's what happens when they start asking themselves questions and they don't really have the the knowledge, the situational knowledge or experience, know how to answer it. It's your job to answer it. So yeah. you have to do that work for them. And that that is the commitment to resolve concerns. And we typically don't ask clients to make it. Yeah. So the commitment to resolve I've actually got to go back to a couple of my, my current sales, Anthony, and I've got to re reframe a few things. This has been absolutely brilliant, so I'm really enjoying this. So we've got the commitment to resolve, and um, what would be the, the last step in the process? Uh, we skipped a couple. The commitment to invest, so yep. we have to ask people to pay enough money to get the result they want, and yep. then we have to have them review the proposal before we give them a final, so an important step. It allows you to make adjustments. If you need to, because you never want to give somebody something that they have to say no to because you miss something. Yeah. Um, then after the commitment to resolve concerns, we ask them to decide. Now, this is the one that everybody makes a big deal out of. Yeah. But it's the easiest of all the commitments to get. All I have to say is, Luigi, um, unless you still need something else, I feel like we have the solution exactly right. I know we have the support of your team. I know we've resolved their concerns completely, and I know that you're prepared to make the investment. If there's nothing else, I'd like to ask you to sign a contract, and yep. I'll start putting this project plan in place so we can get started now. Okay. Does fantastic. that make sense for you, or do you need something else? And they're going to say, no, that sounds great, and they're going to sign your contract, and you're going to be off to the races. Yeah. You do not have to do anything that sounds like this. Luigi, if I was able to give you a 15% discount, mm. could you sign today? Now you just told me you don't even believe your price is accurate. Yeah. You're already overcharging me. Now we have to have a different conversation. I have to negotiate with you now because you just told me you got 15% built in that you can give away without even me asking. Yeah. 
So people do all these nutty things around closing. You don't need to do any of that. Just ask them. You can even ask even plainer and simpler than I did. Luigi, I'd like to ask you to sign a contract and ask if I can get started. Can we go ahead and get started? You can just ask. You've done all this work. You've been through a complex style. Just ask. Yeah. Why do, in your opinion, um, why do so many salespeople fear asking for the sale in such simplistic, in such a simplistic way? They're, uh, they haven't been well trained, first okay. of all. Uh, second off, we've decided to tell people that closing is a bad word yeah. and that they're doing something negative to another human being, which is not true. And, uh, and number three is th- they think that they haven't earned it in some cases. So they don't feel like I've done enough. If you go through the process and you actually have all the meetings and you've created value the whole way, you've earned the right to yeah. ask for that business. And all you have to do is ask. And the last fear that they tend to have on that is what if they say no? Well, if they say no, you just got an important piece of feedback. If yeah. you say, uh, no, Anthony, I don't think it makes sense to do that right now. And then I get to say, what did we miss and what do we need to do for you to be 100% confident moving forward right now? I have to figure that out now. It can happen, but it normally doesn't if you go through and do all the work that we've been talking yeah. about through this whole podcast. But it's funny because oh, – it's not funny, but the, 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 the commitments and the, and the stuff that you talk about in your books and your blogs, et cetera, is that value is not a short – you're not looking for that short-term outcome. You know, the consultative, the trusted advisor, becoming their peer, um, you're genuinely caring about the outcome and the change and positive impact you're trying to help another person achieve. So how important is attitude and mindset when working with customers, not just to gain commitment, but throughout the buying and selling process? It's it's critical the whole way. And there's a whole bunch of reasons I would tell you, but I I generally boil it down to one idea. And that one idea is preference. How do we create a preference to work with us? And if you're self-oriented and you're like, this deal's about me and my commission, I don't need to buy from you. There's a lot of people. And if you are other-oriented and you're serving them and you're helping them make all these difficult decisions then you're you're somebody that they're going to want on their team. So it's critical that you look at it through this lens. Mindset counts. I, I had somebody send this to me. The first book I wrote was called The Only Sales Guide You'll Ever Need. Yeah. And I said, mindset plus skill set plus toolkit is what equals success. Yeah. And then somebody tweeted me, or it was on LinkedIn, it was on one of these, and they said, I think it's wrong. I think it's skill set plus toolkit multiplied by mindset that equals success. And I immediately changed my mind on that and said, I'm, I've been wrong. This is right. Wow. The mindset's such a multiplier. Yeah. If you get the mindset right, everything else comes easier. Everything else comes easier. If you have the right mindset and if you have the wrong mindset, so let's say you're cynical, skeptical, mm. negative, disempowered, think that your competitors, the reason that you're losing deals. If you have any of those beliefs, you're going to struggle for a long, long time. You just have to start by saying everything is my fault. I'm the only one that can do anything about any problem that I have in producing the results that I want in my life. And the more you take that empowering view of I'm optimistic, positive, empowered, future-oriented, capable of learning or capable of figuring out what I need to figure out, it's so much easier for you when you just own all that. Wow. You know what? We could have a whole discussion about attitude and mindset, Anthony. So 
maybe the next one. If it's not banned, we'll look at attitude and mindset because I just love that. Um, and I'm a big, big fan of. Maybe we'll talk about your attitude about band. Yeah. Or weave them together somehow. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, now the other thing I want to uh, I want to ask you because I'm, I'm keen to get you know your thoughts on this. Sales, is it an art or a science? Um, if you and I went to the top of, let's say, the Eiffel Tower, and we dropped a bowling ball off of the Eiffel Tower, you know what a bowling ball is? Yeah. <laughs> okay. You guys bowl there? I'm not sure. I've been to Australia four times, but I've never been bowling there. Oh. So we drop we drop something heavy off of the Eiffel Tower, and then we can measure the force of gravity in such a way with such certainty that if we walk up to another tall building, we can mathematically figure out, you know, exactly the rate and the time it's going to take for that same heavy object to go from whatever height we drop it off to the ground. Yep. And if I do experiment A, I get result B. And if I do experiment A again, I get B again. And if you do experiment A, you get B. You get the same result that I get hmm. every single time. So what we want desperately is for sales to be a science. Yeah. And people say things like sales is a science and it can be learned because it is process oriented and there are things that people can learn. All of that is true except for the part about it being a science. Certainly we understand some of the concepts that I just talked about. There are certain commitments that tend yep. to lead to better success and there are certain commitments that when you miss them lead to losing. But it is not a science because you and I can both call on a client and we can both follow the same process. We can both follow the same methodologies. We can both uh, ask the same questions. We can both have a similar product and one of us will win and one of us will lose. And there's a certain art to what we're doing. Yeah. And that art is around creating a preference and understanding where you are in space with the client. There's all these other components that when we give 600 salespeople – a process and a methodology and the same product and the same training and the same industry with the same playbooks and the same clients, 20% of them are the top 20% and the bottom 80% are the bottom 80%. Mm. And we can take the top 20 and move them into another company and the top 20 are going to over index for something that they have that looks like voodoo or black magic or witchcraft to other people because somebody's able to do something that other people can't do. Yeah. And there is an art. There's an art to the conversations. There's an art to being likable. There's an art to creating a preference that's very, very difficult to understand. But I would tell you, <clears throat> anyone who says it's a science, then I, I will offer them the bottom 20% of any sales organization <laughs> and challenge yeah. them to move them to the top 20% yeah. over whatever period of time they want. But it's it's not science, it's art. And I'll just say one last word about this because it, it is more art than science. So certainly you should have processes and methodologies and playbooks and all that stuff for sure. That's yeah. true. But now we have people saying, well, we can put an fMRI on someone's head. And then when we ask them questions, we can look and see how they're doing this thing or the other thing. We don't know anything about what's going on there. And as far as I know, it's very difficult to get the commitment of asking your client to wear an fMRI while you're going through discovery yeah. with them to determine whether or not you're creating a preference. The truth of the matter is we've been on the planet for a couple million years in something like the form we're in right now. And during that couple million years, 
um, people have figured out when other people are lying to them without having to do mm. to to need an fMRI. There's a gut instinct we can look at and say, this person's trying to take advantage of me, or I feel better with this person and I can't tell you why. There's a study, um, I was listening to Jordan Peterson's book, 12 Rules, and uh, then I found his podcast and I listened to him teach his class on meaning. And one of the stories he told was about female rats. They can walk up to a male rat and just by smelling the rat, tell that it has a genetic D- DNA um flaw. Wow. And they can tell that just with the simple, the, just by smelling the rat and they refuse to mate with those rats because it's putting their baby rats yeah. at risk of having genetic defects. Okay. So that's a rat. The rat does not have a, a, a giant uh, cerebral brain that's processing that. That is something very, very deep inside a rat that's developed over centuries or millennia. Yeah. And I would argue that the human being's gone through the same thing. We don't need you to to give us much evidence for us to decide what we think about you. And we're picking up things in a sales call that we don't even know we're picking up. And the client's picking up something they don't even consciously process. Yeah. They don't say, I really prefer Luigi because I think that he he's just got such a good personality and he brings so much levity to these difficult conversations. They don't have that conversation. It's just like, I want to work with him. Yeah. Okay. They don't, it may not be conscious. So there's something about human beings, um, th- that, that is very difficult to uncover in a scientific way still, even though we're learning more. Yeah. That's amazing. And you're right, you know, authenticity, you just got to be yourself and you've got to be true to your mindset and the way that you focus on like, you can hear it. It's oozing out of you, Anthony, that you're focused on problem solving, adding value, being consultative. Um, and people people can see. They can see that when they and they, and they can hear it. And, and that's what differentiates you from that guy that's just in there to get his commission check. So really appreciate you sharing that with us. Um, biggest Thanks. Influ- Thank you. <laughs> no worries. Now, your biggest influence in your career and why? In my career, um, I would have to say my mom and my mom raised four kids by herself. And, you know, the, the example that I got from her was, um, two, two things. So I, first off, I adopted all of her values, even though I resisted them yeah. all through my childhood, I resisted all of her values. I thought they were stupid and I was playing rock and roll at night. And, you know, I was out in bars when, before I was allowed in bars, playing bars and, uh, I resisted it for a long time. But then the two things that I got from her is uh, I watched her get up every morning at six and work until 10 o'clock at night uh, building a business. And I I watched her do that to take care of her kids. And so the second thing was her commitment to taking care of her kids. And so I got two things from her. And one is um, I've I've got um, one of the strongest work ethics of anyone you'll ever meet. And it's because it was the example I had was – you're supposed to get up in the morning and work until you go to bed at night and you're supposed to take care of your family. So whatever yeah. success I've had, I attribute to her um, giving me the example that she gave me and giving me this value system that I have. She was a great salesperson uh, because she cared about her clients and yeah. you know she has clients in her business for 30 years because of who she was. And so if anybody taught me that who you are matters more than what you do, it was my mom. 
and uh, just the best friend I've ever had. So it's got to be number one for me. That's amazing. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, it's funny because it, uh, my mum was uh, Mary Kay, salesperson in Australia. Very successful at it, actually. Uh, I think uh, second or third in Australia at one stage. And yeah, well, when I, Jeffrey Gittimore, when I caught up with him earlier in the year, he asked me the same question and that was my response. I said one of the biggest influences in my career was my mum because her work ethic when it came to selling was just incredible. Um, and the, and the uh, importance she put on relationship was 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 quite profound so again uh, thanks for sharing that with us and um we're almost getting to the end which is uh, quite sad but uh if we could go if you could go back in time and do it all over again what's one thing you would do differently in in regard to what in, in my life to in your general sales career let's let's keep it to you know oh, my sales and, career yeah. um if it was just my life, I would work very hard to be bitten by a vampire at 17 <laughs> so I could just get locked in at that age. That would be great. Uh, you don't want to get locked in later than that. You know, you don't want to be in like your 70s and get bit by a vampire. <laughs> That'd be horrible. You want you want youth. If I could go back, I mean, I, I, I got, I got uh, woke pretty young because I had a brain surgery and I was 25 and I realized that relationships were the most important thing. I would have to go back to, uh, I would have to go back to about 13 to, to talk to that version of me to say, uh, you act like a dummy, but you're really (laughs) smart. And if you were smart enough to do the work that you could do in school, you could probably get a scholarship to any school in the country. And uh, you could probably do whatever you want. And I I didn't know. I didn't know what I was or what I was supposed to be doing. Rock and roll looked like the only thing. But had I known what I was capable of, I would have liked to have known earlier than I knew. It took me a long time to learn you know, what I am, who I am. I, it, I'm a very, very late bloomer in that regard. Yeah. And I wasted too many years, but I would have needed to go back a long way. Like 13 would have been really good. Okay. I asked my mom all the time, like, didn't you know about hedge funds? Why didn't you tell me to be a hedge fund <laughs> manager? I mean, wh- why? She's like, I didn't know what, a, uh, I had hardly had a bank account, let alone a hedge fund. How was I supposed to know what that is? I'm like, yeah, but think of how I would be doing right now if you would have set me on that yeah. path really early. Yeah, it could have been the Warren Buffett, the other Warren Buffett of the world. Oh, that would have been nice. I would have been. I would like that. Although I, I love what I do right now. I'm doing what I'm supposed to be here doing. So I'm yeah. 100% happy. And when people say, if if you could do what whatever you wanted, what would you do? I'm already doing it. Yeah. And so that that part of me is completely congruent, and I'm very happy. Oh, I hear you, mate. And you know what? If you didn't do what you did, you wouldn't have uh, the impact you've you've had on people like me, mate, in my career. So I appreciate you and value everything that you've you've brought to this. You know to to my career um i can't speak well thank you for saying that no no problems mate so as i mentioned we're coming to the end but um before we do wrap up uh where can where can we find you like you've got some books out there you've got a third book coming out you're really active on linkedin youtube can you maybe give us a bit more direction on how we can connect with you if we're not already connected with you the best place to go is thesalesblog.com. That's home base for me. Yep. And I publish there every day. There's something like, I don't know, maybe 3,700 pieces of content there now. And uh, going back all the way to 2010, that's the very best place. But connect with me on LinkedIn and uh, follow me on Twitter and Instagram. I'll follow you back. But when you go out to the blog, there's a little follow button and you can follow me everywhere and I'll follow you back. And uh, the books, you can find them on amazon.com. 
Oh, fantastic, Anthony. Well, mate, as I said, really appreciate everything that you've provided with us today. Um, I'm going to put some stuff in the show notes for people to go and connect with the sales blog. And um, yeah, so I really appreciate your time. True expert. That episode for me was a highlight of my career. Reading Anthony's books, just like many of the others that we, we, we get to interview on this podcast has brought, it brought it to life. It made the book, it made Audible, it made it oh so much better. What I learned through that session is that what he talks about is not just writing stuff based on what he thinks. It's based on what he's done. It's based on the impact that he's helped and served so many organizations and continues to serve globally every single day. And his concept around closing is not about just getting that sale done. It's about helping that customer and collaborating with them to achieve a common objective. So my challenge to you is, what are you doing throughout the buying process to add value? How are you working with your customer to help them through that buying process? And are you looking at things just as a sale or looking for the greater good? What are you gonna do moving forward to be the best sales professional you can be?